And I want to catch you up on Paul's life during this gap of time and then also introduce you to Timothy. I hope you'll find these two men, though they're seemingly different, are both small and yet both have a deep love for Jesus. And so they're both equipped for any mission. That'll be the first point on your outline. Then I'll give you a brief overview of the two letters, which will be points two and three. So first, Paul. As we pause and we think about Paul's ministry, and we think about what he went through during the time of the Thessalonian church, it's impossible now to be exact about how much time has passed between the end of those letters and the beginning of these new letters. But a good guess is about seven years. Seven years between where we just were, the second letter to the Thessalonians, which would have been written in about 50 A.D., I think, and where we're going next, the first letter to Timothy, written in about 57 A.D. We know that there's been much expansion of Christianity. We have much of the New Testament displaying that. Many churches have been planted, and, and who knows how many people have become Christians even beyond what is recorded. And who knows in the past seven years how many more have become Christians. But as I opened with, suffering has been the down payment for that expansion. How has Paul suffered, and what has that suffering done to him? What does suffering do to us? Thankfully, just one year or so prior to this letter to Timothy, Paul told us himself, in this excerpt, I'm going to read from 2 Corinthians chapter 11, which was written between these, these two spans of time. Paul writes this about what, what he's been up to in the last seven years. Five times, he says, I received at the hand of the Jews the 40 lashes minus one, which, quick pause, they would say 40 would kill you, so they'd stop at 39. So that happened five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. I was on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles. So my own people and Gentiles, that's everybody. Danger in the city, in the wilderness, at sea. Danger from false brothers, in toil, in hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. So Paul is actually boasting a bit here. Showing off, as it were. When you read this, and you think about yourself going through this, this is the writing of a man who has been convinced that he's very small. His body has been broken down by years of suffering, years of anxiety. He asked that the word of God would speed ahead and that he'd be protected against false brothers. And yet, what did he just write? I'm in danger from false brothers. Did God not hear? 
Yet, Paul remains confident even in this weakness. What allows this view of his body, what allows this view of his body fading away, as it were, is his view of God who does not fade away. And so the years of hard ministry have actually left him steadfast. He's boasting at this point in his ministry. This is the old man who who can't stop witnessing the people at the restaurant. Rather than the old man spending his final years on a boat collecting seashells. This is the old man in the diner who just won't shut up about Jesus. This is where Paul is right now. After what we just said. And so we find in this summary that a small man's trust in Jesus has actually proven greater than the challenge of his mission. With all that said, let's now look at Timothy and see what's the difference. Timothy is the audience of the letters we're going to be studying over the next three months. Early in his ministry, so between these two gaps of time, um, Paul befriended, and prior to that he had met Timothy and his mother and his grandmother in a place called Lystra in Acts chapter 16, if you'd like to read that on your own time. And Paul was so encouraged in meeting this young man, he recruited Timothy. And one one notable person of absence from that initial meeting was Timothy's father, who is mentioned elsewhere as a Greek. Now we can gather from the lack of positive adjectives given to him, given to his father, in contrast to all the kind words given by Paul to his mother and grandmother, that Timothy's father was not a believer. Or he perhaps he wasn't and then he died. But there was really nothing good to say about Timothy's father. And all this had a big effect on Timothy because he's described elsewhere as lacking bravery. And I don't know if you've grown up or if you've spent time with somebody who had a harsh father, but they often turn out that way. I'm not saying there's a definite connection, but it would not surprise me at all. So Timothy lacks bravery, described elsewhere. And Paul clarifies, not as a coward, but as a young man made timid by a harsh father. I love this observation from author David Lang. He writes this, Sometime after meeting Timothy, Paul had Timothy circumcised to gain credibility with the Jews. The fact that Timothy was even uncircumcised as an adult shows that his father had enough influence on his life to make sure he was raised as a Greek. And the fact that Timothy was willing then afterwards to be circumcised by Paul as an adult for the sake of his ministry shows that he had some measure of courage and willingness to endure hardship. With that, any young man raised by a harsh father or young woman raised by a harsh father can say amen. Timothy is a young man overcoming a tough past, likely in his 20s at this point. What were you doing in your 20s? 
And he is stepping up to a tough mission field where there are older, false teachers run wild in the church. And Paul sent to restore order to that. David Lang again writes this, 1 Timothy was probably written sometime after Paul left Ephesus in the wake of the riots started by Demetrius in Acts chapter 19. So Paul left because of a riot and then says, Timothy, go into that. Or what happened after that? Now, whether Paul instructed Timothy to remain there or years afterwards, it is likely that Ephesus is a challenging place to serve as a pastor. If they start riots, might be a tough mission field. Thus, Paul's exhortation, David Lane continues, to boldness and perseverance need not be prompted by Timothy's timidity, but rather the encouragement to boldness is just simply by the challenge Paul knew Timothy was facing. So Paul's not calling Timothy to like man up. He's like, you're in a hard field, man. I'm with you. Paul's been around for riots. He's been thrown to sea, thrown in jail. He knows what a hard mission looks like. And so, here's the contrast between the two as we start to dive into the book. And I might say the comparison more importantly. And so a very young man, Timothy, who's shown remarkable maturity, is now stepping up to defend the church against both false teaching and persecution, or rather, destruction from both inside the church and outside the church, this big man, or rather I should say, this very small man, has a very big mission too. And so, Paul points him to a big view of Jesus, which again is greater than any mission. One last irony before we jump into 1 Timothy, if you've been kind of keeping score of these two guys. Paul, a man who does not have children, is now spiritually raising a son. Timothy, who was himself without a spiritual father. And Paul, a former false teacher, is now teaching Timothy how to defend against false teachers. God can use anybody. Let me now give you an overview of these final two letters from Paul. And you can think of these as we just briefly walk through them as two separate missions that Paul is sending Timothy on. And your next point there, mission number one, is this. Behave in the household of God. That's the mission, and that's the point of 1 Timothy. I'll briefly walk you through it, and I'll read a few chunks along the way. This first letter, 1 Timothy, in some ways is a manual that dissects and offers solutions for the problems that a church faces if it's corrupted by false teaching. This letter will not simply be a, a history lesson, oh, that was cool, but rather this will be relevant counsel for us to consider as we seek to keep our church free from corruption. So Paul's main point is how to behave in the household of God. That's the answer. The answer is to behave. And I don't mean like little kids sit down, stop yelling, behave. I'll get to it. While this letter will not be the entire symphony of everything that a church could or should do, it will cover all the major keys. Chapter 1, 
is going to talk about teaching. How teaching should look in a church free from corruption. Chapter 2 is going to talk about prayer. What does prayer look like? Free from corruption. Chapter 3, qualifications for elders and deacons. How to know you don't have a corrupt elder or deacon or leader. Chapter 4, how the elders should treat congregations. Chapter 5, how the congregation should serve the needy and also how they should then treat the elders. So two-way street. And then scattered throughout in chapter 6, there's some helpful general exhortations. So, here's what I mean by all of that. In other words, the answer to all of this chaos inside the church and even outside the church in the form of persecution, the answer, what should the church do, is to behave rightly by keeping Jesus Christ at the center. That's the answer. You don't need a new ad campaign. Keep Jesus Christ at the center. If he is not the focus of the preaching, and he's not the focus of the prayers, and he's not guiding the selection and the growth of leaders, and if he is not impacting the way the church members treat each other and the elders, then all of those people and all of those programs must change. Because Jesus Christ does not change. One thing you might notice in the reading of First Timothy, and I'd encourage you to, to read it over the next week, is that much of the counsel from Paul sounds almost note for note like his letters to the Thessalonians to the point where some of you might be like, why are we preaching on the same thing again? And even a young Christian might say to that, well, that's because these words are from God who doesn't change. And that's true. But I want you to really pause here, and I want to ask you to consider what we just learned about Paul in light of what I just said. If you suffered the things that Paul had suffered over the course of his life, would your counsel change? Would your church bend? Consider it. Consider churches that gradually shift their doctrinal beliefs over time. This is what he's talking about. You know, in the name of progress. Or, you know, God doesn't, you know, don't put a, a period where God's put a comma. Or God is still speaking wonderful sounding things that basically mean uh, we don't like that answer because it's scary and we might lose our jobs. That's often what that phrase really means. Or think of pastors who crumble under camera lights and fail to affirm clear scriptural truths. This happened this week. This happened this week. Why does this happen? This book, right here, this book has more preserved manuscripts and more authentication than any document in history. You can go learn Greek and read what Paul wrote here, word for word. These shifts happen because people are fallen, not because this is fallen. This doesn't need to change. 
So people, instead, seeking their own comfort and their own interests, try to change God's Word rather than being changed by God's Word. And Paul, nearing the end of his life, says, Timothy, don't do that. Don't change what God has wrote. Don't put a comma where God has put a period. Don't do it. And so he charges Timothy at the end of the letter, chapter 6, verse 11, if you'd like to write that down. I'm going to read it now. Chapter 6, verse 11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness and godliness and faith and love and steadfastness and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So in these six chapters, Paul tells Timothy how to contend, how to fight for a healthy church as he seeks to present the church as mature. In other words, pursue good teaching and pursue good prayer and and pursue a strong army of church leaders, ones who will lay down everything to serve the church. Paul's counsel has not changed even in spite of years of intense suffering because Paul has not changed, because God's word hasn't changed. And that's what guides Paul. But it's not enough to simply do a church diagnostic test and make a few little tiny changes. Or maybe print better bulletins. It's not enough to do that and then assume that all is well. Because about five years after this letter, 1 Timothy, Paul writes again. And 2 Timothy is, by all accounts, his final letter. Things are not perfect for Timothy. And things seem to have gotten worse for Paul. But again, as Paul gets smaller and smaller, wasting away in prison, God gets bigger and bigger. So as we look now at 2 Timothy, we find the command, the mission to be guard the gospel. That's your next point, mission two, guard the gospel. Chronologically, this letter follows at least the events of Acts 28, written while Paul has been arrested and he's in Rome. It could be even later, we're not exactly sure. But Paul is deeply personal in this letter and even mentions his impending death. He asked for his coat at the end of the letter. It's that bad. As Paul's final letter, this focuses on obeying and preserving the gospel for generations to come. In a way, this is a summation of everything Paul has worked for as his little blip on the timeline of God's great story goes dark. Because our present situation may not seem like this. I mean, I, I, it's hard for me to relate to it. From what I'm reading here about Paul, wasting away, it's hard for us to kind of get that. So I want to help give you a snapshot of what it would be like 
in this situation. Imagine our church pressing on in the gospel. Hopefully we don't have to imagine that. So we do that. But something happens. We don't get any bigger than this. No more visitors. In fact, a couple leave. Social pressure kind of builds. One week we hear about one of our elders being arrested. You know, not once, maybe, but again. Then another one gets arrested for preaching the gospel, which the government assumes is against the state. And then you're walking around town. Somebody says, hey, what church do you go to? I go to Grace Fellowship. And they kind of step back a little bit. Oh, you go there? It's not a compliment anymore. Then people leave. And a couple more of these elders, they, they keep going. They keep getting arrested. And even some of the few that are remaining are like, dude, stop. Nobody's here to preach. Would you just stop our own? And say, please stop. A couple more leave. That's the endurance that Paul is talking about. How would you do if that happened? How would I do it? What if I were the one in prison? How would I do? Pulling fast to the gospel, he says. Passing it on to the next generation. Handing off the baton with your dying breath. That's what Paul's talking about. So the main question I think Paul is asking, not only Timothy, but us, is this. Will you allow the gospel to die by preserving yourself or will you allow yourself to die by preserving the gospel? I'm going to repeat that. Will you allow the gospel to die by preserving yourself or will you allow yourself to die by preserving the gospel? Paul does not imply that there's any sort of middle ground here. There's a period on that, I think. As you read these letters in preparation for the coming months, think of 1 Timothy as a document which helps to define most church problems of gospel clarity, and then think of 2 Timothy as a command to defend those answers in love, even to death. As a whole, here's the main point. Here's the main point of where we're going to go. God commands and empowers his people to behave in the household of God and to guard the gospel of God. God commands and empowers his people to behave in the household of God, to behave rightly, and to guard the gospel of God. I'll end our brief overview of 2 Timothy with this parting quote from the final chapter as Paul gives parting instructions to Timothy. Here's some of Paul's last words. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me. But all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me 
the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. That's the lion's mouth, guys. Lion's mouth is not the persecution, it's the false gospel. He said, I've been rescued from the real enemy. And then he says this, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. Safely. Not safely, nothing hurts. Go home, watch football, do that, repeat every Sunday until I die, and then I go on to a pain-free eternity. No. Safely means free from false teaching. Pure in the spirit. No matter what happens to the body. That's what Paul wants. That's what we need to want. To him, he says, be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I don't know if Timothy ever saw Paul again after this letter. But I know they see each other now. I'll close us with three gospel connections and then a few general applications as we look ahead to these final letters from the Apostle Paul. First, just a few gospel connections as we connect this to Jesus. You didn't see it already. Number one, Paul, in following the example of Jesus, is literally pouring out his life for the sake of the gospel as Jesus did. Paul's just doing what Jesus had to do. Go out there, preach the gospel, die. Paul's doing it. Second gospel connection is Paul's life marked by the gospel has led to the planting and preservation of churches in some of the hardest places or the ends of the earth as Jesus commissioned. So Paul's obeying the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all nations. Paul says, I'll do better than that. I'll plant churches. I'll make disciples who are making disciples. And third, we see evidence of that Great Commission right here. We're here because of Paul's work. And Paul did his work because of Jesus' work. So in light of all that, here's some general applications as we look ahead to the next few months. I'm going to give some general applications to the head, to the heart, and to the hands. What we believe, what we feel, and what we do. So, head first. Remember this equation. And if you don't remember it, it's right on your outline. So just circle it or something. Jesus plus small people is greater than any mission. Just remember that. See, there's, there's some of you, even in this room, I would say, who could plan a church. Or you could train up leaders the way Paul did. But you're afraid. You either believe that Jesus is too small or you believe that people are too big. Or maybe you believe one because of the other. You want to please your parents. Give me a job and some just get a job and give me some grandkids, you know. <laughs> I can struggle with that. I like kids are three and five and I'm thinking, man, I hope they give me grandkids. That'd be cool. I gotta fight that. That might not be their, uh, might not be their path. Or you want to please your coworkers, so you keep quiet. Or your boss. 
And so you marginalize what Jesus says is true. This belief, Jesus plus small people is greater than any mission, this has to be writing or every other application I give you doesn't work. So circle that again if you have to. And I've included a question for our small group time to help us better diagnose that. Uh, second is uh, application for your heart. This one's going to seem strange, but bear with me. Love the gospel more than you hate suffering. Love the gospel more than you hate suffering. And I word it that way just because, I mean, many preachers in here and out there have rightly said, suffering is not something we smile at. It's not fun. Yeah, you read stuff like Romans 5, 2, 2 through 5, it says like, we rejoice in our suffering, and you're like, what are you, crazy? That's not what they mean. We talked about that already. It's not that we like are super happy when it happens. Here's why we rejoice in suffering. We rejoice in suffering not for what it is in and of itself, painful and racks your brain, but rather we rejoice knowing what it can accomplish. We rejoice knowing what suffering can accomplish. You probably read the news, over 20 people died last Sunday in church. We shot. Do we smile at that? No. We don't smile at that. It's good. But how many more might become Christian missionaries because of what just happened? How many more might say, I'm going to go, you can't stop me. We're going to plant 20 churches because you killed 20 people. How many are going to do that? So we don't rejoice in their deaths because of those who died, how many will stand up then and reach new things, reach new people, reach new nations for the sake of the Savior who died for them? We can love them. So we can love what suffering accomplishes without being happy when suffering happens. Now that takes a while to rewrite, even that part. Even that part. I don't know about you, but my first reaction typically is, again, so I've included a small group, uh, question in small group time to help us diagnose them. Lastly, uh, application for your hands. Know and preserve the gospel. Know and preserve the gospel. In love, in other words, even as I mentioned last week, speak into the lives of people who may be distorting the gospel even if that person is in the mirror. Speak lovingly into the lives of people who are distorting the gospel here, even if it's the person in the mirror, a.k.a. you. I might say, do that first. Now, so, to warn them, don't trust them, don't let them just get away with it. They're hurting themselves and they're hurting us. And do that in love, praying they'll turn back. And this does not mean that our hands simply go up as we question and clarify people's actions in an attempt to understand if their motives are good or not. 
But rather, how this applies to our hands is that we also, in addition to sticking our hands up, that means we also use our hands to turn the pages of our Bible and clarify what's it actually saying. And then our hands are also praying for those people and for ourselves. Asking God to help us understand and apply his words. Romans 8 9 says, Christians have the spirit of God living in us. If God is in you, it is his good pleasure to help you know him by knowing his word. He wants you to know what this says. He wants you to be clear. Well, that's a big mission. And we're small. But all is well because God is done. So you can confidently do all these incredible applications because Paul asked Timothy to do it in 2 Timothy chapter 3, and I promise I'll end with this. But as for you, Paul writes, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And I might add to that, especially suffering for the sake of the gospel. Let us pray. Dear God, I thank you for the life of Paul. I thank you that you did not leave him in his ways. But at one point in history, you plucked him out, you blinded him, and you gave him new eyes to see. And he saw you. And because of that, many more saw you. And Paul suffered. And as a result of that, many more knew, and many more suffered. And as a result of that suffering, many more knew, and many more suffered. And as a result of that, we know. We know. Lord, help us to continue to know and love you more. Help us to have the mind of Christ. Help us to have a love for our neighbors, which includes the people here, and everyone out there, even those who would seek to tell us. Amen.